Uh, hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of How We Made It in E-Commerce. Our guest today is Dan Shapiro, the founder and CEO of Glowforge, a company that makes a, a very innovative 3D printer. Uh, prior to founding Glowforge, he also founded uh, SparkBuy, acquired by Google, RoboTurtles, a company that helps teaches kids how to code, and uh, PhotoBucket, another successful company. So welcome. Welcome, Dan. Thanks so much for having me, Jasper. Yeah. So first of all, you you set the record for for crowdfunding when you initially raised money for Glowforge. You raised twenty eight million dollars. I read some stats, and apparently the the average raise for for crowdfunding is about twenty eight thousand, and it has an eighty percent failure rate. So uh, what you did is phenomenal. What, what, why do you think you're so successful? Gosh. So Glowforge was my second crowdfunded project. The, the first two companies I started, Ontella, which became PhotoBucket, was venture-backed. SparkBuy was venture and angel-backed. But when I decided just for fun to make a board game that teaches programming, I decided to try launching it on Kickstarter. And at the time, that set the, the, uh, the record for the most backers for a board game ever. And so it was really like I got to kind of polish some skills with that and then move on to Glowforge, had the, the highest dollars for any 30-day crowdfunding campaign. I think, I think still does. But the reason for that was really all about the community that we were able to attract and bring in. So for Robot Turtles, I was thinking about this game and this idea. But the moment I decided to, to make it something more than just an idea that you know, I played with my kids and told my friends about was when this phrase, uh, I was describing it to a friend and the phrase came to my mouth, a board game that teaches programming to preschoolers. And they looked at me and were like, that sounds great. And I'm like, oh, I have one short sentence that in a moment is going to divide the world into people who share my excitement and people who don't care at all about what I'm doing. Because it's a pretty esoteric thing, especially in 2014, when people were not talking about coding for kids and like, you know, coding as part of the curriculum was still relatively new. And certainly at preschool, people weren't talking about this. And the idea of a traditional board game made out of cardboard that teaches coding was just not something that anybody had thought of. With this one phrase, people would either become really excited or most of them would say, good for you. That sounds great. Let's change the subject. And as somebody who is trying to make an idea take root in the world, whether it be via crowdfunding or whether it be via AdWords or whether it be via, you know, old school billboards, I don't care. The most powerful thing you can have is a way for people to decide whether or not they want to be a part of your cause. You know, maybe it causes too big a word for some of these things. I mean, it was a board game, sure. But there was something about that that made most of the world say, I don't care and made an important small slice of the world say, I really care. That was the crux of it. That was the pitch to news articles when I started telling people about the project. That was, the, that was the, what we talked about in the email. That was the core of the message was something that would divide the world into people who care and people who don't. And if you can do that, if you can get people fired up who are excited about what you do, that's what puts the energy behind any marketing campaign, crowdfunding or otherwise. Crowdfunding has its own dynamics, like it's time limited. And so, you know, you've only got a certain time, people are more likely to share. And you have this notion of backers who share with their friends. But at the end of the day, it's all just about communicating passion and excitement and helping find the people who care about what you do. Very interesting answer. So, you know, this concept of finding or being able to divide the world into people who care, who, people who don't care. By default, the world doesn't care about you. Yes. Right. 
<laughs> and so I'm still trying to understand how do you get so many people to care and how much work did you put in into evangelizing your idea, getting media mentioned, that sort of thing. Did you put in a lot of effort or did you just post it and somehow it seemed to be the kind of idea that just took off? It's a great question. And I'll answer for Robot Turtles. And the reason I'm going to, I'm going to use that as my example is because Glowforge it was a massive project. We had over a million dollars of investment before we started the crowdfunding campaign. We had over $8 million in investment, I think it was, before we launched our crowdfunding campaign. So we had the resources of a professional PR firm. Uh, I had a full-time marketer. It was a small but real startup. But with Robot Turtles, I think, and for so many more people, it's a one-person show. At the time, it was me. And I had a little money that I'd set aside to go hire contractors to help. But that was, I think I paid $2,000 for somebody to help shoot the video. And that was about it. And so it was really just me doing whatever I could. So I did everything that I could to get attention for this project. That means I went and I've only ever done this twice. Once when I launched Robot Turtles and once again when I launched uh, SparkBot, uh, when I launched um, Glowforge, I emailed everybody in my email history. And I said, I'm so sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to tell you I'm doing this new thing. And I went and shared it on social nonstop. Then I went and called up every reporter who I knew. I emailed every reporter who I knew and pitched the story and, and called in every favor, everybody who I knew and said, hey, could you back this and could you tell other people about it? And none of that actually was what made the difference. What actually made the difference was people grabbing onto that idea, the board game that teaches programming to preschoolers, and sharing that one idea with other people because it tickled them. And so they thought about other people who would react the same way. The opportunity and mistake here are the same. And they're the classic of all marketing, which is that you want to make your product talk about it as being for everyone. It's actually much more powerful when you can identify the people who it's really for. And when it is polarizing, when people can say, yes, that's for me or no, that's not for me. Because as soon as you think like board game to teach programming to preschoolers, everybody starts thinking about the parent who wants their kid to be ready for anything, about the parent who is technical and wants their kid to follow in their footsteps, about the precocious kid who just seems to pick up everything really fast because those are vivid. They pop into mind and they go, I know exactly the five people who I want to share this with. Whereas if you have this thing that's for everybody, then I'm like, I'm not going to share it with, I'm not going to email every single person I know. If it's for everybody, then it's for nobody. And that idea of being able to identify who it's for and then give people the tools whether they be, uh, you know, the phrases, the pictures, the social, the social sharing, to be able to share that within the community of people who care, not just with the world as a whole, but among that community of people who cares, that's what's powerful. And by the way, I should mention Robot Turtles, even though it, it set records, did not get a lot of press at launch. It actually got less press than many similar crowdfunding campaigns. The biggest press that uh, press coverage it got was actually two thirds of the way through the campaign. When NPR picked up a story about it setting records, and it wasn't even on NPR on the radio, it was just on the, on the website, and talked about it setting records. And so their news story was, look how much people care. That the die had already been cast at that point. But that notion of something that, that people can say, that's for me, and it's, or, or maybe it's not for me, but it's for these five other people, that's what makes an idea like that go viral. That's what makes an idea like that spread when it's easy to describe and it's easy to know who it's for. Interesting. Yes, a whole lot of we'll, we'll come back to this notion of a polarizing idea versus something that's for everyone. But for now, let's talk a little bit more about Glowforge. How did you come up with the idea? And can you describe it for a layperson? Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So 
I was working on Robot Turtles. One of the things about a product where people become really passionate about it is you don't have to come up with ideas because people come to you with these amazing ideas and your product like develops itself as people come up and they're like, oh, this and that. And something I kept hearing from people who are excited about the game was, you know, on Kickstarter, a lot of people do deluxe versions. And they said, I would love a deluxe version. I particularly remember one parent said, my son is five and he will want to grab onto a turtle and carry it with him everywhere and put it in his pocket and like rub it and play with it. Could you have a deluxe version that has a turtle that like the turtle pieces where he can play with them and where they're, they're durable? And so I talked to a friend who was a, uh, a Boeing engineer, and I started talking to him about how people make things. And my first go-to was like, what about 3D printers? I'm hearing amazing things about 3D printers. But I looked at the technology, and they really were just making ugly tchotchkes slowly. Like, it was this sort of hairy, you know, fluorescent colors, all one color. And it, it's got like little bits sticking out of it. It's just like plastic junk. And it took forever. It would take hours to do a relatively simple print, days to do a complicated print. That didn't feel like something where I could make, you know, 50 or 100 of these. So he was talking about all the different types of tools that they had in his, uh, in the shop at his work. And he mentioned laser cutters. And I said, you know, I've heard of laser cutters. And in the game, one of the turtles has a laser on their back. So that feels on brand. And I actually, this is not, this is like ancient Dan prehistory. When I was in high school, I ran the hologram lab at the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry and used lasers to make pictures. And then in college, I designed and built laser displays like to shine on the wall and, uh, and sold those on the early internet. So I have a long love of lasers that I hadn't even thought about for 20 years. And so I said, oh, lasers, that sounds kind of cool. And one thing led to another. And I wound up with this giant industrial carbon dioxide cutting laser imported directly from a factory in China and installed into my garage. And it was terrible. It took me days to get it to work. It took me weeks before I could make any game parts out of it. But once I did, there was this incredible process of I'd put in a sheet of raw material, I'd push a button and out would come something beautiful that I was proud of. So I actually made all the custom editions of the game, not the mass-produced cardboard ones, but the, the, the 75 special edition pieces myself. And then I looked at this thing and I'm like, this is a core of magic surrounded by layers and layers of terrible. What if all the terrible was stripped off? And what if we made this into the promise of 3D printers that I'd gotten so excited about? What if we made this into the device that sits in everybody's home? You push a button and whatever you need comes out, whether it's something that you'd otherwise buy in the store or whether it's something you just dreamed up, whether it's a product for a company that you're going to start, whether it's a toy for your kids, whether it's a classroom organizer or a piece of furniture. What if we had the Star Trek replicator that could make everything? Because I think this technology can do that. And then through a stroke of good luck, I re-met an old friend, Mark Goslin, who had uh, spent the, sold his startup and then spent a year building a giant laser cutter, 3D printer milling machine in his garage. And I explained this vision. And together, we came up with the Glowforge 3D printer, which you see right here, which is this really, if I may say so myself, beautiful machine, sits on your desk. It's the size of, let's say, a small check bag. And it is magical. 30 minutes. From when it arrives on your door, you will be holding your first print, and it's incredible. Very, very cool and, and fascinating. Let's talk about 3D printing as a trend. You have a very engaged community I've seen on your website, people making all sorts of things. And there, there are people who dream of this 3D utopia, where we no longer have massive factories making products. Everything's printed on demand. And so that will reduce waste, save the environment, increase sustainability. 
that's one dream. And then there are others who say that it will never be more than, than a hobbyist pursuit, injection molding and massive factories are here to stay. What, what do you think? There's an analogy here. Back when I was a kid, nobody had computers and the power of technology was locked up inside of giant industries and in enormous warehouses where these humongous computing machines sat and lived. And everyday people didn't get to experience the benefit of this. But technology turned that around and ultimately brought the power of computing to families and people all over and brought it into their homes. I was a child of the PC revolution. Now I think about making things. And here's the thing people don't realize. This world where all the stuff you get comes from a factory halfway around the world, put on a container ship, stockpiled in an Amazon or Walmart warehouse, and delivered to your door or held for you on shelves until you go pick it up, that's not normal. Our birthright as humans is tools. It's making things. And for all of human history, people who wanted something would make it for themselves or they'd find it in their communities. It would be made by the people who needed it, for the people who needed it, for the purpose for which it's needed at the time at which it's needed. And the last few hundred years have been an aberration. And technology can bring that back. It can bring us back our birthright to be able to create things for ourselves. And as an engineer who spent like my whole education and my whole life making stuff, that is something I want for everybody. And so that ability to go give the power of creation to everyone, that's the business I'm in. It happens to be made with lasers and it happens to be this shiny white and glass thing with one beautiful button that you push on the top. But the thing I'm excited about is people being able to make things for themselves. Does it ever completely obsolete the factory? Probably not. There's probably always things that are going to be made in a specialized facility, just like there's still data centers. But the ability for people to create for themselves is incredibly powerful. And when I think about the digital world, where I spent the past 20 years of my uh, 15 before starting Glowforge, writing software, the reason that software was so powerful was because it was the first way that technology gave the power of creation back to people. It was the first way that everybody in the household, from young kids all the way up to adults, could harness technology to create what they wanted. But now we're able to do that with physical things, not just with bits and bytes. What are the most surprising things you've, you've seen your customers make with the Glowforge 3D printer? I mean, the list is so long, I don't even know where. There was uh, somebody who posted on Twitter because uh, two baby robins were stuck in a window well. And he ran to his Glowforge and he made a giant, he had a Glowforge Pro and he made this enormous ladder because the Pro can do giant oversized materials. He made this ladder and he put the ladder in the window well. And he has video of the mama bird coming down and airdropping snacks while the little babies hop up from one step to the next step and escape out of the ladder. Never in a million years. We have another customer who is a heart surgeon, who teaches heart surgery, pediatric heart surgery. And not too many years ago, the only way that he had to teach this was by having somebody look over his shoulder while he performed the actual surgery. And their first practice stitch was on a child. And then he worked and worked and convinced somebody to create a surgical trainer so that they could practice on the trainer. But it cost something like $500 per try, which meant every med school student got to try it once before they went to a kid. So he went and created this pediatric surgical trainer on his Glowforge that lets students uh, studying to be surgeons try until they get it right so that they could perform the surgery with sure hands and with experience the first time they try it rather than what had happened before. And it costs something like $5 a try instead of $500 a try because he could print this himself. And then it was as simple as an email. 
for him to share this design with the entire medical community. This same doctor, by the way, also did laser guacamole, just to show that people are not one-dimensional. He took his guacamole for Cinco de Mayo and lasered it as he gave away to people. So, well, that, that, that is funny. So, so the, the surgical toolkit, is, is it like a, a human cadaver that people practice on? What is the thing that medical students? Yeah, it was, it was basically an opening and the metal ring, except he, uh, he printed it out of, uh, of wood to make it quicker and lighter and easier that they would go through. And then a ring that was the shape and dimensions of a child's heart valve. Okay. So that they would have to put their tools through the ring, just like they would in the case of real surgery and not touch the sides. Honestly, it was disturbingly similar to the game of operation I played when I was a kid. And so they'd have to put the instruments in and very carefully go and stitch this rubber membrane onto the stand-in for the child's heart valve so that they could do this. So it let them practice the, the motions and the stitches that they need. I hope I'm getting this right. He explained it to me and showed it to me. It was right. amazing. I'm no surgeon. There's one more thing, even more amazing, that we've actually made more of than anything else in the world, which was at the start of the COVID-19 disaster, I was dead set against everybody saying we're going to 3D print medical gear and that hospitals were going to be taking homemade medical equipment. Uh -huh. And as the crisis worsened, I realized that, no, that is actually something that needed to happen. And based on feedback from doctors who are customers and surgeons and professors, we designed these things called ear savers. What they allow you to do is take a surgical mask that otherwise puts pressure on the back of your ears or might be too small or too large and adjust it to fit by hooking it on. And I apologize for the plug. We've given away almost a million of these and we're going to be giving away millions more. And if you go to glowforge.com right at the very top, your listeners can go request these for the essential workers in their lives. We will match them up with someone in their community with a Glowforge to make them, or we'll make them at our factory and send them out. But it's a way that I never dreamed of that's actually making it possible for us in partnership with our customers to turn these distributed tiny factories all over the country and all over the world into a force for good overnight. Fascinating. Plug all you want. That's such a vital <laughs> tool for, for, you know, for nurses and health workers. So I don't mind the plug. Let's talk a little bit about your business. So how many customers do you have today? How much revenue, if you don't mind sharing? We haven't shared either of those numbers. It's tens of thousands and tens of millions, but we haven't shared the details, uh, okay. the details behind that. It's not a mom and pop shop. It's a humongous growing business. Yes. Great. Well, I love the success and, and the variety of things you're able to make. And then many of our audience members are aspiring e-commerce entrepreneurs. What are your main source of customers? How much is organic traffic versus paid acquisition versus other channels? I'll tell you our staggering number and the one that uh, I think defines us as a company. It's defined our strategy since the start. It's defined our greatest success. And that is that last month, 60% of the people who bought a Glowforge were last click attributed to another customer. Like 60% of the people who bought attributed to another customer. So it's basically- uh, the, the last click was a referral click. So I'm not talking about like 30 day click through anything else. I mean that their actual purchase link came from another customer. So as tight a coupling as you can imagine between our success and our delighted customers. So from the very start, when we, we are creating this product, there's something you don't realize about hardware products, but there's a lot of decisions you make that basically say, is this going to be like a razor and razor blades where you keep switching out parts and it's constantly getting worse and you have to keep paying money in just to make it work at all? Mm -hmm. Or is this going to be something like an iPhone where you make it once and then you try immediately to convince people that it's trash so that they'll buy the next version? 
Or is it like an Xbox where you make the thing and then you keep making it better? And the only reason you get more money is, is if you're delighting the customers. And we wanted the latter. We wanted a company that was fueled on our customers' happiness. And so that went into so many design decisions about our product and where it came from. And ultimately, that's what's been paying off. If our product wasn't something our customers loved, we wouldn't have a product. We wouldn't have a company because 60% of our sales are directly attributed to a happy customer. That said, we use our, our fair share of, of ads from all different sources. Facebook is still, I believe, the largest. Instagram and YouTube are up there. We've been experimenting with a number of different ad networks. We started TV advertising a few months ago and looking at that, which has been working really well for us. And what we find is that we take this one at a time strategy where we started out years ago saying, Facebook, 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 we're going to get really good at Facebook. And once we did, we said, okay, YouTube, 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 let's build up expertise there. And then we went to Instagram, you know, TV is a new thing. And we try to do them one at a time and use our learnings from one to become better at another. So we'll try what worked on another platform, but we'll also mix it up a lot, try different approaches and see. So that rather than uh, spreading thinly across a whole variety of different areas, we try to build deep expertise in one before we move on to the next one. I see. Yes, yeah, 68%. That is a dream uh, referral rate. So 60, yep. 60. So what, what, what would you say is your percentage of revenue spent on marketing? I assume it's much lower than, than everyone else's. It's actually higher than it is for many companies because we don't have retailers in the middle. We're direct to consumer. So okay. we spend a tremendous amount on brand building and on outreach and the like. Whereas if I compare myself to other technology companies, they are putting a whole lot of dollars into their, uh, you know, into Target or into Amazon and paying them fees. Whereas the vast majority, uh, more than 95% of our sales are direct through our website or direct through us right now. So we're not afraid to invest in our own brand. Also, I'm including, so uh, one of the reasons that we can track this is we offer a referral program where we offer a discount if our customer gives you a link. Like if you go right now to glowforge.com slash FOD, friend of Dan, you're going to get a discount of up to $500 off of a Glowforge Pro, which is a $6,000 product. That's our top of the line. And if you use my link, then I'm going to get $500 cash or $600 of credit to use towards the store. And by the way, 80% of our customers take the credit option. So they're just taking that referral and putting it right back into the store. But we'll take that whole $1,000 cost and put it towards customer acquisition. So our customer acquisition costs are something like, I don't remember off the top of my head all in, but it's something on the order of um, 20% of uh, sales price. And also we have them at three different price points. So it varies, is that right, 20%? Uh, maybe 15% of our total amount. But that includes a good chunk of our referral program in it. That includes our ads, that includes our brand, the whole, whole kit and caboodle. Yeah, it's still well below the figure I've seen is about a third for most DTC brands. So speaking of DTC, which is a big trend now, you know, companies like uh, Warby Parker and, and Casper and, and others that, that are big on direct consumer, they found that it still helps to have a little bit of a brick and mortar presence. So for you, would it make sense to try having your products in Best Buy or some other chain like that? You know, we've thought about that over and over and over again. I have... Uh, really, so one of one of the I, I wrote a book called um, Hot Seat, the Startup CEO Guidebook, and tried to share some of the knowledge that people have shared with me over the years. And one of the things that I believe in, and I don't remember where I got it from, but it is that if you do something that is obviously the right idea and is obviously smart and obviously wise, that is not a strategy. Strategy is when you pass by an opportunity that looks amazing, because. Everybody can agree on the great opportunities, or at least most of them, and the things that are sort of obviously good ideas. But for a company to have strategy, it says, I'm going to take all the things that, are, that seem like good ideas. I'm only going to do one or two of them. 
maybe then do some things that don't seem like a good idea. And some of the things that seem like a good idea have been retail over the course of the year, the years. And one of the strategies that we've taken is to say, we were not going to touch retail for years. Similarly, education. I love education. I have kids who are in public schools. My previous project, Robot Turtles, was all about help teaching kids to code. And it killed me that we weren't going and selling into schools. But I wanted to get really good at one thing, which was D to C. And I wanted us to focus our energy around that, not splitting it out. And hey, you know, Target says you have to add this feature to do it. And educators need that feature. But customers actually want this other feature. And marketing wants this different feature. I wanted us to be focused on doing one thing right. So we didn't even touch retail until... We started a partnership with Joanne, the national fabric and craft chain, about a year and change ago. And that was going incredibly well until COVID-19 shut down just about everything in retail. And suddenly we felt pretty good that we had a strong D2C business because that's continued to be strong over the course of uh, the last few months of the crisis. I was really grateful when the crisis hit, uh, our sales started dipping and, uh, and I thought we were going to have layoffs. I immediately, we cut everything we could from our budget. Our leadership took a pay cut, but we kept the rest of the team's pay intact. We didn't have any layoffs. And then we held our breath and applied for PPP funds and waited. And through some incredible work by our marketing team, we managed to pull back out and actually continue to grow coming out of that. So we canceled our PPP applications to free up those funds for a company that needed it more and were able to continue to grow our company. And we're actually hiring again, including by the way, on our growth team, I would be remiss if I did not point out our incredible growth team that set all sorts of records all over the place. You know, that experience of going through that made us grateful that we had that direct relationship with our customers because that was what let us survive that crisis. We'll go back and we'll continue to work with retail and look at those opportunities. But we're going to, you know, we built this position of strength and we're going to continue to expand outward from it rather than trying to do a bunch of other things at the same time. You know, simultaneously, while we were busy selling only directly to customers, we became far and away the most popular laser for public schools. They're folks who track public school expenditures and somebody pulled data for us and we're like, did you know that you are far and away the number one brand for selling laser fabrication to public schools, which was a surprise to us. We've actually now hired a director of public school education. And as I mentioned before, our director of uh, educational sales, And as I mentioned before, when it works, your customers pull the product out of you. So now we have hundreds, actually, I think thousands of teachers who are using these in classrooms, in schools, who are helping us create lesson plans and educational programs. So we're entering that with the benefit of customers who are are helping us rather than trying to push into it cold. Kudos to you for returning those uh, PPP funds for other small businesses that don't have access to VCs, capital markets. Uh, You mentioned something interesting about strategy like choosing a few things to do versus trying to, to do everything. And earlier, you, you talked about like how you want your product to be an Xbox that you keep improving. And as a result, people keep buying versus an iPhone model where you have to trash the old model to get people to buy more or versus the razor and blade type of model where you sell an expensive blade and then you keep selling the refill. Since your category is printing, you know, HP famously built a very valuable business selling expensive refills and cartridges. Do you think there's an opportunity for you to sell the materials that people use to make their products? We thought really hard about this because it's a huge opportunity. And at the same time, we wanted to give people the flexibility to say, I'm going to put my MacBook in my Glowforge and, and engrave the cover, which you can do right. and is amazing. And I want to go and take this, you know, hands-on board, you know, from my backyard or this old barn wood and engrave with it. So we didn't want to limit to that. Again, we came to this notion of how can we build materials that delight our customers so much that they want it, 
not how do we lock them into it and force them to take nothing else. So we sell a line of materials called Proof Grade Materials. It's our own brand. I've been printing uh, Settlers of Catan game at home. So this is what I just happen to have handy as a, a piece of the sort of the water border. But you can see it's pre-sanded. It's got a okay. furniture grade finish on it. What you can't see is that when you print on it, it has a white coating that peels off that protects it through the process and it's barcodes on it. So the machine identifies it automatically and does all the configuration for you. So you just have to push the button and print. So using our materials makes it dramatically easier. So in that sense, we do have, you know, the sort of like HP ink business that we sell those, but we don't sell it for an inflated markup and we, it costs very, uh, very similar to what you pay for unfinished raw plywood anywhere else. And we don't force you to use it the same way HP does. The other idea that came to mind as you're we talking, do you think you could dislodge Etsy and build a crafts marketplace because so many of your customers are showing off the products they make? Do you think that's, that's an opportunity for your company? It's possible. One of my investors who'd served on the board of a number of multi-billion dollar publicly traded companies, he joined wow. as an angel investor, uh, although he's a VC by trade. He said, as I've watched a couple of multi-billion dollar companies coming from, uh, come, to, come to fruition, the pattern I've seen is they get to this place where they're a meaningful player in the space. They have a theory of how the market's going to evolve. But once they get into the market, once they have the product there, they have the humility to look around and realize that they might be wrong. Because as the market starts to unfold, it sometimes shapes up differently than you'd expect. And it turns out used exactly the same example you did. He said, Nobody at HP thought that the money was going to be in the ink. That was just ridiculous until it wasn't. Right. And so we tried to take the same approach with our business. Like we think we sell, we build and sell a great product for an amazing price that delivers all the value you want. And then we go and build these amazing materials and we sell those at a great price. And we think that there's this ecosystem that's like an Xbox or a Nintendo Switch where you buy the product and then you buy the follow-ons. And you only keep giving us money if you keep being delighted with what we do to you. But we also could be wrong. It could be that we should be giving away materials for free to sell the, the, the machines, or we should be giving away the machines for free to sell the materials. We don't know where the market's going to go. We don't know where the technology is going to go. But by staying close to our customers, by listening to them, by building products that they love, we think we'll be the first to figure it out if it turns out we're wrong. I see. And I noticed on your website that you offer... Uh payment plans through a firm. Your, your product is pretty high priced. And, and that's one of the big trends in e-commerce now using a firm or Klarna. On every checkout, there seems to be that option. What percentage of your customers would you say are taking the option to use a firm to pay on installments? And how many do you think wouldn't otherwise buy the product if that was not available? That's a good question. I don't remember the answer to the first number offhand. I think it's in the 20 to 30% range, is it? And I don't okay. know what percentage of those wouldn't. Unfortunately, the way we'd learn that is by like A-B testing when it's there or when it's not. And that's just not a great experience for our customers when you A-B test around things like pricing or checkout. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes you show up and there's an option or a price and sometimes there isn't. So that didn't feel right to do. The reason we put it in comes right back to what we we're talking about. We have these passionate people who want to become our customers, who want to own a Glowforge, who want to create with it and are trying to figure out the way to make it work for them and for their families and for their business. About a third of Glowforge units, 80% of them go into homes, but about a third go to help with a business that exists. A third go for mostly personal use, but I'm also going to sell some stuff. That's like Etsy or eBay or Saturday markets, that sort of thing. And a third of them are just for personal hobby use. And so especially for those people who are going to buy their Glowforge and then use it to pay for themselves. And there are so many people who come back and they're like, it's been three months, it paid for itself. 
for those folks to have a financing option where they can go get credit from somebody, use that to go purchase it, and then use the machine to pay for itself is incredibly powerful. So again, that just came from customer requests, from customers saying, can you help me find a way to go bring this into my home so I can start using it to provide for my family or to turbocharge my business or whatever it is. And so we went and found a partner that we liked uh, that would uh, that would help us do that. Interesting. Uh, let's talk about diversity and inclusion, something that's uh, top of mind right now. It's Juneteenth and uh, all the protests going on. You were a champion of, of diversity and inclusion long before it was fashionable. I remember you giving a speech in 2010, I think, you were talking about how you, you pay bounties to get referrals for diverse candidates at your company that time, Photo Rocket. So two questions. How well has that policy worked in terms of getting diverse candidate referrals by paying bounties? And how is Glowforge doing today on that front? Well, yeah, that's something that has never been more present. And it's something where when I founded the company, the Mark Goslin, who I mentioned, he was the one who built the thing in his garage, also a white guy. And as we talked about this, I said, hey, Mark, you know, if we just build this product for people who look like us, we are going to miss most of the opportunity in front of us. Because the joy of creativity and the passion to make things, you know, inspiration and creativity in the home is mostly not people who look like us. So how do we build a company that looks like our future customers? One of the things I, I felt very conflicted about was that program that we put in place, which is the referral for underrepresented candidates. Because on the one hand, it sounds really mercenary. And I was worried about all the potential side effects of paying for underrepresented talent. Conversely, I think that companies exist to put dollars to work against problems. And if a company says something's a problem, but they're not putting dollars to work against it, they don't really think it's a problem. So you know a company is serious about something when they allocate budget to it. And if they're not allocating budget, they're not really serious. And I wanted to follow that principle with diversity and inclusion. So there are a lot of ways that we try and put dollars against that, whether it be training about bias, microaggressions, anti-racism for all employees, whether it be our trying to find the health insurance. We're limited in terms of the health insurance that we can choose because we're still small, but trying to choose the most inclusive health insurance that we can that's thoughtful about not just trans-related health care, that's thoughtful about parents and new parents. We have a ton of new parents. I think, I can't remember how many Glowforge babies we've had over the five years the company's existed or some of the other areas. And then publishing our health plan on our website, which is something that I just, every company should do this. Because there's nothing more ridiculous than having to ask a recruiter if you can afford to work at the company because you have some medical condition and you don't know if it's covered. Transcare is a great example of that where not all plans cover that equally and it can be make or break for some people. So we publish that on our website. We also have a different way that we do job offers. We've found uh, re the, the research is really clear that the negotiation pro process penalizes women and underrepresented minorities, people of color for negotiating. So we actually do all of our offers based on data. And we have an offer process that puts forward an offer based on data that's the best offer we can put forward without any need for negotiation. And then we let the candidate say, and I'd like an extra bonus of salary or an extra bonus of stock on top of that. And we're totally transparent about it. So again, no negotiation, but it lets them customize the offer for their own needs. So we try to put all that together. I will say that you asked if it worked. The proof's in the pudding. If you go to glowforge.com slash about dash us, or if you just go to Glowforge and click on the about us link, you can see. Now, not all sorts of diversity are apparent by looking at people's photos, but the reason we put that there is that people could hold us accountable to the goals that we set. And what you'll see is some measures were doing great and against some measures were not. I'd love for my executive team to be even more diverse. We've had uh, women represented well in the company since its inception. Although in some teams, it's gone, gone up and down. And then as we look at Black employees, as we look at disabled employees and other categories, 
the smaller it gets, the more challenging it can be to do well across all of those. We still have a lot of work to do. And now more than ever, we've been thinking about how to do that, particularly through a lens of anti-racism and uh, an inclusion towards our Black employees, and then extending those learnings and making those apply to the company as a whole. You know, recently, we've also done things like adding internship programs where we source from students in underrepresented communities, uh, advertising on more diverse job boards, Black jobs, and Society of Women Engineers and continue to do whatever we can. Um, back to your original question about the, the bounty, though, the, we've had incredible results with that. We actually increased the amount, I believe it's $10,000 now. What happens is if on people's first day or uh, shortly after they start, we ask them, would you like to tell us that A, you consider yourself underrepresented in tech and B, a certain person referred you. And if you did, we'll send them this payment. And it's totally up to the new employee whether they want to uh, make that statement or not. And that was important to us because we didn't want people using underrepresented folks as a like a financial lever and saying, oh, I sent you this person, you owe me something and have that person be like, no, you didn't or arguing about who was or wasn't underrepresented. So we just leave it in the employee's hands and say, hey, if, if you consider yourself part of this underrepresented group and you have somebody who referred you, please let us know. And I can tell you in the history of the company, nobody's ever abused that. Just knowing the folks who've used that to send to somebody, I've been so happy about every case that's happened. And it's been it's been a piece of, uh, of building a more inclusive, a more diverse uh, workforce. Fascinating. Do most employees let you pay the bounty? Most don't. Okay. But it is very common that people will refer to that as a part of the reason they came. That is, they'll say, hey, I found you myself. But when I saw that you were actually putting your money where your mouth was, it made me realize this wasn't just talk, but it was actually something you cared about and were serious about. Yes, so true. There are lots of companies that pay lip service, but you know someone's serious when they put money at stake. So as, as a person of a color, I applaud your efforts. Kudos. Earlier, you mentioned that, you know, having an idea that polarizes versus one that's widely appealing to the masses actually increases your odds of success. You've raised venture capital for Glowforge. And very often I hear founders say that uh, VCs rejected their idea because it's too small. The market isn't big enough. It's a niche opportunity. Can you talk a little bit more about that? You want to appeal to people who are really into the product, but then how, how do you convince people it's a big market? I mean, let me just take a moment and say it's VC that is a niche opportunity. Okay. The vast majority of successful companies in this country are raised without venture capital. Venture capital is a tiny, tiny piece of the entrepreneurial market. It is so heavily focused in the Bay Area, it's ridiculous. It is provably by the numbers racist and sexist in the companies that succeed coming out of it. And it is the wrong fit for almost every company. It is this big, but it gets this much mind share. And it's really important to realize that VC is not success and VC is not right for most businesses. For the businesses that it's right for are businesses where there's an opportunity that is basically pour massive amounts of cash in because there's a tremendous opportunity that can only be uh, addressed with massive amounts of cash. If you have a choice of going the VC route or not, I would always recommend not doing it. If you've got a business that can self-fund or can crowdfund or the like, and, and angel investment is a little bit on the cusp. Most folks may know, but angel investors are investing their own dollars and doing so on sort of an amateur basis for the most part. VCs are investing other people's dollars and doing it professionally. Angels typically don't ever invest again once they've invested. VCs will have follow-on investments and expect you to keep taking on VC money and keep running at a loss until you either sell the company or IPO. So if you want to go on that, you know, running down the hill ever faster, you can't stop until, you know, ever. 
high growth, pouring dollars into it. If that's what you're after, then VC is kind of the only game in town. But I would start out by encouraging people to not measure their success by VC. For example, Robot Turtles, insane to take VC dollars for. It would have destroyed the company because suddenly it would have been like, okay, now we need to launch two games. Now we need to launch four games. What's the next thing? Let's bring in the marketing team. So all that said, I've taken VC for a number of companies, but um, technically three of my four companies. But it's not something I recommend. It's just something that's there as an option. But because it tends to be the companies that can afford the VC-backed companies are the ones with big PR firms that talk about how they're VC-backed. It takes up way more space in people's heads than it takes up in the economy. So with that enormous disclaimer, splitting the difference between uh, you're trying to do everything all at once and uh, it's too small, nobody cares, is really difficult. And honestly, for each of the company, the three companies that were VC-backed, I probably had 20 to 60 VCs saying no. So every one of those companies, imagine 20 to 60 people saying, that company's not going to be big enough. No. Even me, who's had uh, by far a greater percentage of success than most folks do, even with all the privilege in the world, uh, presenting as a white guy who looks like just what people fund with an engineering degree and, you know, the pedigree from various tech companies and more recently successful startups, even like with all those, still most VCs say no. So it is a really brutal path. That said, the folks who are successful come in with a story about how they can start to address the market. Like what's the first little piece of the market, that polarizing decision that a small number of people are like, yes, I want to rent an airbed in somebody's like apartment, which is insane. And let's like Airbnb's foundational idea was so polarizing. Almost nobody wanted to do it, but the people who wanted to do it. were really excited about it. So they had that first market. And then the path by which that becomes everybody. So the path by which I'm going to rent an airbed in somebody's basement turns into we can disrupt the hotel industry by making use of unused residential real estate, which is still a kind of crazy idea, but it's one that can attract a lot more people and looks like, okay, so VRBO exists and it's already sort of in that world. So you could kind of see how it goes from here to there. That's the best I can offer. You come out with that polarizing idea that a small number of people are passionate about, and then you kind of draw a dotted line and say dot, 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 and here's how it might get very big. I see. Got it. And then final question, you've had a string of successes as an entrepreneur of four companies, you know, GlowForge, SparkBuy, robot turtles and before that photo bucket most people never succeed at one so to what would you attribute your success and if you could give one word of advice to our audience what would it be in in closing oh boy okay i mean i'm going to answer the question to what do i attribute my success first in order privilege luck and then everything else below that so the odds of being successfully funded go up by a horrific amount if you're white go up by a horrific amount if you're a guy. And the numbers are just way more difficult outside of that because it's still a really racist industry and a really sexist industry and a really prejudiced, biased industry. That stinks. Luck. When I say, you know, 60 people said no in the 60. Well, actually, if I think about like the Series B financing for Photo Bucket, I actually kept numbers. 68 people said no. The 69th person said yes. And then I was done. So if that 69th person, if I'd been unlucky and they'd been sick that day or had, you know, turned the other direction, then that company would have failed on the spot. And the same is true for every one of those. I can count so many points where luck just broke my way. I sold SparkBuy to Google because I happened to randomly sit next to a guy on an airplane. I wrote about this in my book in, uh, in great detail, but uh, exactly how the whole transaction went down and the negotiation, everything else. But it started because I sat next to somebody on an airplane, struck up a conversation with him, exchanged business cards. 
and told him what I was working on. And he thought the idea was cool enough that when he stumbled on it later, when we launched, he remembered it and found my business card and called me up out of the blue. Uh, That's not luck. I don't even know. But then underneath it, it's just trying over and over and over again. Like the third one on the list after privilege and luck, that's the only one that's in my control is every one of those successes has dozens of failures behind it. A thing I don't talk about was uh, two years after I graduated, three years after I graduated school, I tried to start a startup with a friend and pitched everybody who I could find and, and tried to you know get VC attention and got one person who was interested. And then it fell through at the last minute. And I got seriously depressed. I wasn't diagnosed with clinical depression. I don't know if it was, but I spent the better part of nine months playing video games, barely holding down a job before my then girlfriend, now wife sat me down and said, like, it's been nine months, you need to get on because like, this is not you and this is not healthy. And that, you know, that could have destroyed me. There are so many no's on the way to the yeses. That's the only piece of that history that's in my control as I just tried a lot. And so what's that advice for people? It is you have to be your own biggest champion. And it's really about that because you're going to need to inspire others. You're going to need to bring that vision home to roost. You're going to need to bring people along for the ride. But at the end of the day, you need an idea that you can care about. You need an idea that you can love. You need an idea that is going to make you happy if it works and that you're going to feel peace with if it doesn't work that it was worth going to bat for because most startups fail. Most companies don't get funded. And at the end of the day, all you can ask for is that you came up with something powerful and important to you, something to make the world a little better, and something you'd be proud saying that you took as far as you could take it. And I hope everybody gets to have that experience of turning it into a company and building something out of it. But whether you do or not, that experience of creation, whether it's an engraved guacamole or a pair of earrings or a company, I don't care. It's that experience of creation that we can all share in that is so incredibly powerful. I love the candor and humility, Dan. Thank you so much for being on our show. And thank you again. It's been a pleasure interviewing you. Jasper, it's so great to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me on. Take care.